David Oyelowo stars as America's legendary lawman in the new Paramount Plus original series, Lawman Bass Reeves. The new original series from executive producers Taylor Sheridan and David Oyelowo is based on the true story of Bass Reeves. Witness his journey as he becomes one of the first black U.S. deputy marshals west of the Mississippi. Stream all episodes of Lawman Bass Reeves now, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Hi, everybody. Welcome. The moment I read this book, I knew I had to talk with the authors. The question this book hopes to answer is this. How do we begin to uplift and empower Black men in a world that refuses to see their humanity? And I cannot think of a more crucial time for us to be having this conversation. So I invite you to watch or listen to this with the men in your life. The book is called The Invisible Ache. Black men identifying their pain and reclaiming their power. And I want to introduce you to the authors. I've known Dr. Robin so many years. She is a renowned psychologist and author, and she appeared as an expert on The Oprah Winfrey Show over 30 times. And she goes by Dr. Robin. And you all know her co-author, two-time Emmy and Tony-winning actor, husband to Angela Bassett, and father of twins, a son and daughter, Mr. Courtney B. Vance. So wonderful to be here. Yeah. So how, how did how did this hookup happen? How did y'all do this? Gilda. Gilda. Gilda Squire, my manager, Courtney's part of his management team. Mm. Courtney had a, a story, which is in the book, and mm. I'll let him tell that. But um, his father died by suicide 33 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then his godson died by suicide. Yeah. Uh, during the I pandemic. Read that. Yes. Courtney said to Gilda Squire, I've got to do something. Mm. I have to, I mean, two men in my life have taken their lives. And Gilda said, I think I might know the person. And so she brought us together. Yeah. I, you know, when I saw the title, The Invisible Ache, something in me just went, Ugh, you know, I think it's a perfect title because I think. That is, as you have described so fluidly and so uh, poignantly in this book, that is what so many Black men are enduring. What does the invisible ache mean to you, Courtney? Well, I I can only imagine my father Mm -hmm. 30 years ago. I mean, we all know what it feels like to get underwater, to begin to know that the water's coming up to our nose. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then what do you do? I mean, I, I, I grew up with two parents and was I knew I was loved. Mm-hmm. Um, so no matter what. Which is the most magnificent thing anybody right? can say about okay. their childhood I, is I, I knew I was, I was loved. loved. Yes. I was lo- I, no matter what happened, Miss O, I was loved. Mm-hmm. I knew it in my spirit. So that choice is nowhere in my makeup. Mm-hmm. But my father, I was a foster child. And we came to find out from Professor Skip Gates, Finding Your Roots, Angela and I did that show, my father's side of the family found us. 
And my sister and I went to Chicago and, you know, were embraced by, mm -hmm. and they started telling us stories. And um, This is after your father has passed. After our passed. father, you know, it was 30 years, you know, past, 25 years. And uh, the, the family got us together and said that, his mother, Miss Ardella, mm -hmm. would uh, would be saying, "Where's my boy? I want my boy. Where's my boy?" You, they took my boy, and they were like, "What did she say?" Nana, stop, stop. You know, come to find out, she was that my father was taken from her because uh, she lost her mind when she was young, mentally and ill, mentally okay. ill, and they took her back down to Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, my fa if my father could have just waited, if he mm -hmm. could have waited, he would have found out that she was looking for him. Wow. Mm -hmm. She was looking for him her entire yeah. life. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. let, let, let's back, back back for a moment because when your father, mm. the person you've looked up to, who's been the father figure for you and been there for you, kills himself, I, I can't imagine, and actually in reading The Invisible Ache is the first time I thought about, oh, what that would do to a grown son. And you were on Broadway at the time. On Broadway. Six degrees of separation. Top of yes. Top of the world. Top of the world. And I, you know, I came get back. Get the call. To get the call. My mother is, you know, hysterical. And uh, I, I, my first thought is Stocker Channing in Six Degrees because mm -hmm. we had promised each other we wouldn't leave the show. Mm -hmm. And she said, Courtney, go home. I mm -hmm. called her. She said, go home. And uh, we, I get home and, you know, it's, it, we're, my mother is puddled up on the floor. And, you know, as we finished with my sister and I, after a month, we were about to go back home. My mother said, took us aside and said, I want you both, when you get back to your respective cities, to find a therapist. I'm going to find one here, and we're going to break this curse right now. And so, you know, but then the, the whole journey of how. Yeah. So I want to read a few statistics to give some shape and context to the crisis that black men are facing. Hmm. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry reports that the suicide rate for young black men has increased by 60% in the last two decades. So it's been reported that 21% of black people say that they are struggling with mental health conditions like depression or anxiety, but an astounding 61% have not received any kind of mental health services at all. Dr. Robin, you um, have described the invisible ache as an invitation, you say it is, for a black men to join this conversation because they need and deserve to be at the table. And you say that there are cultural barriers that have prevented both black men and women from voicing this inner turmoil. What, what are those barriers? And can we get to the point where they're broken down enough for change? Yeah. You know, Oprah, the, there's an African quote that says, the lion's story will never be known as long as the hunter is the one to tell it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And so a part of this is helping black men in particular and boys uh, tell their own stories, uh, be the originator of their own narratives. And what happens is that racism um, sexism as well, but racism in particular, the hatred of someone mm -hmm. because they are black has become toxic, not only to non-black people, but to black boys and men. And so there, there is a place in which um, they're almost emotionally constipated with feelings that they don't know 
what to do with. And so part of- I like that emotional constipation. yeah, Yeah. And so part of this, the invisible ache is I see it almost as an altar call of calling all men Mm. to the floor of their own life. Mm. It is their divine birthright. That you live a full, whole, free life. Yeah, which means you get to have all of your feelings. Meaning you get to be angry and you get to be sad and you get to have vulnerability and see your vulnerability as a strength. But when that is uh, carried by black men and boys, Um, It's been pathologized. We know that black boys, and this is hard to believe, in kindergarten can be uh, what they call left back. They can fail kindergarten. Oprah, how could a four or a five-year-old fail kindergarten? And we see that it is more black boys Mm -hmm. than anyone else because they're seen as problems. Yes, And it's one of the reasons why Bruce Perry and I wrote the book, What Happened to You? Actually, uh, from a conversation just like this, he was saying, what happens to young black boys in school? They're the first ones to be expelled. They're the first ones to be sent to the principal's office. They're the first ones because they're seen as a problem because it's what's wrong with this boy, what's wrong with this boy, instead of people looking at what happened. Yes. The question is what happened. That is the truth for every one of us is what happened to you and not what's wrong with you. Well, we spoke with black men and women around the country who have read already The Invisible Eight. Walter is 52. He's a married father from Virginia. Walter, you have a question for Courtney. Hi, my name is Walter. I'm a military veteran with experience on multiple military fatality review boards focusing in on suicide prevention. I'm curious, Courtney, do you feel like you let your father down or did you miss any signs indicating his struggles? Uh, great question, um, Walter. Uh, I, I don't feel like I let my father down. It was, you know, they, they blessed me by when I was in uh, eighth grade, I, my, I was uh, in the basement working with my father cleaning up and he asked me, where are you going to go to school, Court? Or where are you going to go to high school? And I said, well, St. Mary's dead because um, I know we can't afford for me to go to Detroit, Detroit Country Day, which is, you know, mm-hmm. everybody knew I wanted to go there. Um, and he said, well, son, your mother and I are going to sacrifice and we're going to send you there. My, I knew my life spun right there. So, I, um, but, it, but the cost was that I was at school 16 hours a day. I played three sports for four years, and so I was always away. And I, in my spirit, I knew that 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 something was going on. And this was a school yeah. where there were predominantly white kids. Absolutely, PWI. Yeah. So Absolutely. You're, you're doing the code switching. I'm doing the code switching. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been doing that since fourth grade. Yes. I went to a Catholic school. And the thing I knew about my father is that I knew he was unhappy in my spirit. But I knew at the same time he and my mother wanted me to, that's why they sent me there. They wanted me out of here. They wanted me to be able to have access to all those things. And I knew in my spirit, I had to do this for them. And then when I found out after he died that he he couldn't pay off, he had 10 credit cards charged up to the max, but he paid off my Harvard loan. Oh. He paid off my Harvard loan so I wouldn't have to deal with that. That was his gift to me, I mean, and my gift to him was all that I'm doing. And, but, but at a certain point in life, as for all of us, we've got to recover. Our parents could only do so much. Mm-hmm. They took us as far as they could take us. The rest of it, Walter, is on me. I blessed him beyond measure. Mm-hmm. Harvard, 
uh, um, you know, did the theater. Every one of your successes. So he was there and saw all that. Mm -hmm. He couldn't do it for himself. That's the invisible ache we're talking about. Yes. Yes. That's the invisible ache. Executive producer and Emmy Award nominee David Oyelowo, Emmy Award nominee Dennis Quaid, and Emmy Award winner Donald Sutherland star in the new Paramount Plus original series, Lawman, Bass Reeves. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, the co-creator of Yellowstone, the original series shines a light on the untold story of America's most legendary lawman. Follow Bass Reeves' journey and rise to becoming one of the first black U.S. deputy marshals west of the Mississippi. Despite arresting over 3,000 outlaws during the course of his career, the weight of the badge was heavy, and he wrestled with its moral and spiritual cost to his beloved family. Don't miss David Oyelowo as Bass Reeves in the new original series, Lawman, Bass Reeves. All episodes now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I know you suffered, as you say in the book, and Dr. Robin just told us, another devastating loss in 2020. Your 23-year-old godson took his life. Tell us about what happened to him. When I was reading that, it's like, yeah, he I, should still be here. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and, he and, should still be and here. And how many people, because during that that three year period of COVID, when things were just a little, not a little, a lot out of out of alignment. Yeah, that the if the parents had actually been able to go into the hospital with him and sit there at the doctor's office with him, and when the doctor said, we "Did the two hour examination? Mm, you seem fine. Okay, you know." And then when he comes back out back out to the car, and because he needed medication. He needed some some chemical balancing medication, yes. and the son was like, you know, young people. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You feel good? Yeah, I feel good. You 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 seem like you're good. Yeah, I'm good. He went to the doctor twice for the same situation, and they wouldn't give him medication. He said, you're fine now, but what happens when you have an episode? Mm. And he had an episode. So the, it's so painful to think about the fact that it, because of maybe a pill. He could still be here. And I just want to also remind us that the brain um, isn't fully developed until we're 25 years. 26, 25, yeah, 26. At yes. least, yes. you know. So we're also talking about someone whose brain wasn't fully developed. The issue also of guilt um, in terms of, you know, does Courtney feel like there's something he could have done? The reality is that that's, that's part of the fantasy that, we, if we had just known this, and that's not true. And so I want to remind people today that when people are deeply um, living in despair, Mm. that you could be there all the time. There's nothing you can say. There is nothing you can say. There are, you did everything you could do. Yeah. And your father's, what was sitting on his soul was too much for him to carry. So besides suicide, what are other consequences of being emotionally constipated? How does that show up in other ways? Yeah, well, certainly depression and anxiety uh, over-functioning. So we will also see men who are workaholics and maybe they're even rewarded for working so hard, but it's working because they're afraid. Mm -hmm. They're afraid that if someone sees... Um, beneath the mask, that they're not good enough. Um, it shows up in relationships where, I was gonna say, yeah. uh, where basically they aren't present. I was going to say that. They're and, not and, present. And, and, and so many women are trying to understand why I can't get you to open up. Right. And the reason is? Well, the reason is because it's not safe. And there hasn't been any permission given. 
mm-hmm. that their voice matters, that how they weigh into something is essential. You know, there is a dismissiveness that yes. many women um, who may not be happy to hear me say this, but you know, we don't really need him involved. He doesn't have access to his feelings. I mean, it's not really helpful to tell dad. Right. Um, and so that cutting him off even further makes him feel worse. It is the invisible ache instead of calling him to the floor of his own life. I love this being called to the floor, called to the altar. Another one of our readers is here with us live. Christian is a 29-year-old chemical engineer from Memphis, Tennessee. He read The Invisible Ache and has a question for you, Dr. Robin. Hello. Hello. Hey, how you guys doing? Welcome to our conversation. So growing up, I really dealt with social anxiety due to me feeling like I didn't fit in. I tried talking to my friends and family about it. They kind of wrote me off as either tripping or they would tell me that uh, I was just having a moment. And naturally that just made me start keeping a lot of it to myself and, you know, presenting myself as okay, even though I really wasn't. When I was 17, that actually led to me attempting suicide. Um, and I ended up staying in a, in a hospital for a little while. I'm 29 years old now and I'm doing a lot better. But um, my question is for young black boys that are dealing with similar situations um, that feel like their friends and family aren't necessarily a safe space to discuss their mental health. Um, what, what should people in that position do and who should they, um, like how should, who should they be able to come to? Yeah, that's a beautiful question, uh, Christian. The truth of the matter is we're, we have to work within the limits of who we were born to. And so a lot of times our parents and our communities, churches or mosques, they're stuck. They are emotionally constipated, constipated not yeah. because they're bad people, but because they are living dwarfed and small and scared. And then they want to put you and me in that same box. And it's also, I mean, I say this too, because they never dealt with their stuff. Absolutely. And because they never dealt with their stuff and they have just gotten through life surviving. You know, it's like, well, I walk 40 miles of school every morning. And so you can walk 10, you know, I've been through this so you can do this. So when there is all this unprocessed pain and trauma, and people feel like, well, I survived, they think you can too. So it's until a person can fix themselves, there's no way they can actually relate to what's going on with you. Isn't that and true? It Dr. is Robert? absolutely true, Oprah. And what I love about what you just said is they want you to be in the same prison yes. that they were in. And the reason is, again, not because they're bad people, but because if you start talking about the unspeakable, Yes. that they have not addressed. <laughs> what does it mean for them? So first of all, your courageous act, and hear me, I'm glad you lived through the attempted suicide, but I'm also glad that you somehow cried out so that someone would take you seriously. And now you are taking yourself seriously. So when you say, what can young boys do? They can have you as their example, and the other black men who are stepping up and coming to the floor of their own lives, like Courtney and Michael B. Jordan, who um, has gone to therapy and talks about, you know, his therapy as a young black man. But we need to normalize that pain 
is a part of being human. It's not a disease. It's not something that makes us weak. And I think the more we show black boys that there are images of wholeness, because that's really what you're showing and what you're calling us into and what the invisible ache is talking about is a whole black boy and man. Yeah. Did you see yourself in the pages of the book? Oh, yes, for sure. For sure. There was um, one part of it titled uh, The Mental Health Crisis. That portion of it spoke to me because I grew up in a two-parent household also. And um, my, my, I, I had a lot of things given to me. A lot of people didn't look at me as someone who, who could have problems. It was like I wasn't allowed to have problems. My friends, they would say, oh, that, that's just how Christian is. You know, he's just, hey, he's having a moment. You know, he'll come back. But so, you know what, Christian is so powerful. He's having a moment and it's being able to say, actually, I am. Yeah. Yes, I am having a moment when people say like, you know, you're all in your feelings. It's like, yes, in this moment, I'm in my feelings. And so I, I love that you are pushing against yeah. that prison that tried to keep you. Yeah. And you said no. Yeah, no to that. We applaud you. Yes, Thank you for absolutely. reaching out. Thank, Thank you. you so Thank much. You. Thank, Thank you. So much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know, part of what you say in the book on page 70 and 71 is what black men grapple with as they confront a litany of injustices is an internalized rage that they don't know what to do with. They're ashamed that they have to deal with such indignities in the first place and fearful of the ridicule or dismissal they will face if they unveil their anguish. Can men even begin to process this, this built up rage and anguish? The first part is to be able to admit it. Mm. See, there's something that almost feels shaming. People who have been, you know, we know with domestic violence that often women will hide yeah. as if somehow there's something wrong with them that someone hurt them. And so black men often hide that as if there is something broken and shameful about their very existence. And so being able to admit in a safe space with other black men or your family, how humiliating it is to have someone follow you around a store. Mm -hmm. So ownership, not owning that you're the problem, but owning that you're not and that it, it hurts. Yeah. It hurts to be humiliated. It hurts to be treated as if you are the problem when you're not. When you're not. Yeah. And That's why it's so brave of Christian even to, oh, to call right. into this today. Absolutely. And to be able to have somewhere to go with it. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, to be able to talk to someone, some group, perhaps some release that's positive. Well, I appreciate it on page 80 where you said, Courtney, it's profoundly lonely to feel like you're mm -hmm. cloaked in a fog. You can't see out and no one even bothers trying to see in. Did you ever talk about this feeling with your friends or family? No, no. Even though one is able to succeed and do well, uh, something's going to happen in life where you where it catches up with you. Yes. You know, you're going to come up against yourself and all those things that used to work. Yeah. yeah. They just don't work anymore. So Robert is joining us. He's 44, lives in Alexandria, Virginia, and is a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserves. He has a question for you, Courtney. Hey, Robert. Hey, how are you all doing today? We're good today. Hello. Good to see you. Pretty smile. Great, great. 
I want to thank uh, Courtney and Dr. Robin for taking on the challenge of addressing this through this book, not only a book, but what I look at as a resource tool, a tool for think tanks that I have with uh, my peers that I went to college with, uh, my peers, uh, my fraternity brothers, as we start to open up and be able to talk about our wounds and the invisible ache. One of my challenges that I often have uh, being in a public uh, position of leadership is that I often feel like I have to wear a mask, a mask in which I can't comfortably be an emotionally transparent version of myself. Mm. Courtney, you being a prominent actor, uh, a public figure, and a father, how do you emotionally balance these roles and these portrayals of black men that you play on film and then become Courtney B. Vance at home, who is dealing with your own troubles and struggles and vulnerabilities. How do you take your mask off? Mm, Great question. Mm -hmm. um, Angela and I, you know, from the very beginning, we said our family is first. Uh, the business comes second. We'll tell the business what to do. For us, it starts with each other. I'm who I am because of the trauma I went through and came out on the other side of it. But the journey, the journey of life, if we allow ourselves to, we're on a journey. And there's days when I'm going to be not okay. And that has to be okay. I'm the same person I am when the, the, the business likes me or wants me, when I'm on top of the world, as when they don't care nothing about me and they push me to the side. So mm -hmm. I, I'm still working on me all the time. Yeah. And I think inherently mm -hmm. understanding that your family, mm -hmm. your values, who you are and your family are is the most important and understanding that ultimately the outside world don't care nothing about you, no way. <laughs> and I think the people who get the most um, destroyed are the people who believe that that outside thing means something. So you got to actually be able to put that in perspective and to know they really don't care anyway and not going to yeah. be there for you when there's a crisis or when you're in deep need. It's the people that matter to you that matter. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's our responsibility as well to seek out those places, be it therapy or be it the barbershop, be it places where, you know, something, some positive release. Sometimes sometimes you just need to get out and get some air. Yeah. And just go to the beach and walk or go to get in the... I mean, and if you can't do that, I mean, whatever you can do in your area, in your life, to give yourself some space from whatever has got you down. And also having someone to talk to. Yes. I mean, being able to have someone to talk to. And those barbershops are sacred. I grew up with a father who was a barber. And uh, <laughs> I, would, I have to say that the barbershop on Saturday is the pre-church to church on Sunday. Uh -huh. it was on, Absolutely. It's pretty extraordinary. Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much for reading The Invisible Thank Ache. Thank you. Thank you for your question. So, Dr. Ro Robin, we hear a lot about this term, um, toxic masculinity. How is, how is that toxic masculinity viewed differently for white men versus black men? Well, this is the empowered person you want on your team. You drop color on that. The same behaviors, the same attitudes. We go from the kind of the Marlboro yeah. man to this person is dangerous and a gangster. Right. Because that is where you can end up with a bullet in your head 
when there's no gun in the car and there's mm-hmm. nothing that made you scary except that you were black. Yeah. yeah. And even you, I was surprised to read, had an experience with the police yes. at your home. Tell us about that. So we, I was in the house and I heard something outside. Uh, the house, and a little noise or something. I mean, you know, black people, uh, the, when we hear noise in the house, we grab a knife and walk through the house. <laughs> right. So yeah. I grabbed the big, biggest knife in the house. I was about to walk, you know, walk through the living room, about to cross the 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 big plate glass window. And I said, something told me, it's probably somebody on the front porch. Let me just go to the front door and open the door. I mean, just look out. Some tell you to put the knife down. Put the knife down. (laughs) But went back to the kitchen, put the knife down, went to the front door. Yeah. The the children were three and they were asleep. So let me turn the alarm up. Boop, 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 boop. Open the door. There's five sheriff officers out in our front yard just screaming and just out of town. Um, screaming at the top of them, come down, come, come out here, come put your put your hands, put your hands in here, come down. I said, ma'am, uh, I live here. Get get down here, get on the floor. So I come down. I've watched enough Law and Order episodes to know <laughs> to keep my mouth shut, and been in a few. I was going to say you've been, <laughs> not just watch, you've been in, been, so. been, been, been in, so. so I walked down, uh, got up, put my hands behind my head, and and uh, there was a, a sister over to my left, and I got down on my knees, put my Hands behind me said, and she said, oh, Lord, 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 no, no. So she recognized me. So what did they think they were coming to? What, what had somebody said? Somebody, I think, called in. I think the, the patrol service had called in that because we were supposedly out of town and that they saw something or somebody heard something. And so I realized that there were five other officers in our backyard. In order to get there, they have to hop over the fence. And that meant that if I had gone with my knife, knife. Mm-hmm. across the plate glass window, I'd be dead. They would have shot me. Yeah, yeah. And with the children in the in the bed, so it's and then ask questions later, later. or been sorry later, and, yes. And then said you tried to attack them or whatever. Right. Yes. What it doesn't matter. Whatever they say, I'm dead now. <laughs> Instead <laughs> of just saying, yeah. let you know, ask. Now, if I had been white, they would have. Uh, excuse me, sir. We were just uh, we're out here because there we would have been white. another kind of assumption. Yes. yes, and that's why I said we all know it that. is often not just dangerous but deadly yeah. for black men as it relates to their masculinity mm-hmm. and what white America experiences as hypermasculine, yeah, scary masculine when a man is just embodying his right to be here. Yeah. Lampert, 31, lives in Los Angeles, and he has a question about finding your voice as a child. Lampert? In the book, there was a story shared where the kids had to switch schools, and they weren't allowed to ask their parents any questions about it because they were the parents and they were in charge. And I can relate to this from my own experience growing up because I, too, was not allowed to question my parents about anything. And I spent a good amount of time in therapy discussing how I felt growing up, I didn't really have a voice. And so Courtney, as a parent of today, what are some ways parents can create opportunities for their children to be able to share their opinions and ask questions in a respectful manner so that they can feel as if they have a voice in their own lives? You know, uh, great question. Um, great, great question. We, uh, we, uh, a pastor uh, I heard on the radio one time said that children need to learn obedience from zero to 12. So from 13 on, we have discussions. Um, so, I mean, and, and by obedience, meaning respect. 
Yes. Um, one of the I was up at at our at the, the young people's school every day, uh, literally every day at their preschool and uh, elementary school, so that the teachers saw us. The white teachers saw this black skin up at their school. See, you know, our daughter was pulled tight. She was good. It was important for the school to see me there and for Slater to see his father and his mother's presence there to know that... Engaged in interest in him. Engaged in interest in him. Mm -hmm. That it was that dad and mom care and that eventually we're having discussions now. Years ago, someone on the show said to me that Mm. there comes a time in every parent's life where you first you are the manager and then you reach a point where you are now the consultant. Mm -hmm. And the problem is most parents can't make the shift. Yeah. Yeah. From you managing everything to now you're consulting. The other thing that's just important also from that question is not just obedience, as you said, which is respect, but that uh, children also deserve to be respected. Oh, And so often parents are expecting to be respected, not feeling that they owe respect. I know. And so that's a really important thing uh, that as that question was asked, being taken seriously as a child is really important because if I don't take you seriously, then I am making you invisible. Absolutely. There's so many wives and partners of black men who say they don't know what to say or do when the men in their lives struggle. Natasha, I know you have a question for Dr. Robin. Hi, my name is Natasha and Dr. Robin, my husband has struggled with anxiety and depression for many years now as a result of racial discrimination that he faced in his workplace. And I guess my question for you is, how can I, as his wife, be a better support for him um, as he struggles with his mental health? Yeah, that's such an important question. I mean, the first answer might surprise uh, Natasha. It is to practice good self-care because what can happen is that she wants to rescue him, which can be depleting and exhausting on her and then can feel tapped out as a resource. And so the first thing for her to do is to actually care for herself so that she can support him in his own journey. Mm. The other thing that is important, particularly around racial stress at work, are what other supports does he have in his life that are affirming? So we need, if there's a lie coming in that he's not good enough, if there is a lie that is growing, because what we focus on is what grows, what grows has dominion. Expands. Yes. And so the question is, what is he doing in his life to counter the lie? According to the American Psychological Association, black men who experience feelings of anxiety or depression are about half as likely to seek counseling as their white peers. And Lorenzo is joining us. He has a question. Hi, Lorenzo. Good afternoon. Uh, first off, I want to say that the book is absolutely phenomenal. You all did a, a great job, and I think it's going to allow black men to open up more to some of the situations that we encounter. Um, in uh, 2019, I became very depressed after losing my father. And then the pandemic, of course, occurred, and that didn't make things any better. Uh, had a lot of emotions, things going on, didn't know who to talk to. So, Dr. Robin, I'd like to know how black men can become more comfortable with their therapy, 
And secondly, what have been some of the mental barriers to black men in their health in the past? Mm -hmm. Lorenzo, as you ask that question, how can a black man become more comfortable going to therapy? It's to understand what therapy really is. And therapy is an opportunity and it's an invitation to visit the parts of you that haven't had room to breathe, that haven't had room to be honored and explored. It's not a place for sick people or white people or rich people. You know, that used to be, that's who goes. Actually, therapy is about entitlement, that I feel good enough about my worthiness to sit with someone mm. and explore my inner world with mm. a safe person. Lorenzo, do you, you're in therapy now? Actually, I'm not currently, but uh, again, after reading the book and okay. going through some of the things that uh, I've encountered, I'm definitely looking right. forward to uh, finding the right. therapy. Because that, that, that was one of the, uh, the, the hardest part for me was actually finding, yeah. you know, for being, being, being brought together with the right person that I can now let down my, because once I did, I was talking a mile a minute. And my therapist had to say, Courtney, you don't have to tell me everything today. today. Yeah, I remember you know? Dr. K. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, you know, once it, it's actually, it was actually freeing for me. Yeah. I and mean, but the work is finding the person. Now, what's interesting is you had first gone to a black woman. Oh, my God. And you describe, you remember this in the book, Lorenzo. He, he, and, the, he and the black therapist are sitting there staring at each other. And finally you say. <laughs> I said, my head, my head. I said, oh my goodness, this what is, is going on? She this said, is not working. She said, do you have a headache? I said, I don't have a headache. I need some help. Yeah. You and know? so she was the not, not the was right the person for you. So it's not necessarily the person who is of the same gender or the same race. That's right. Because you ended up with a Jewish woman who. Short little Jewish woman. Yeah. Short just just, Jewish just woman. changed my life. Changed your it's life. someone who has the courage to be curious about a world that is not their own. Mm. And that's for all of us. Thank you, Lorenzo. Thank you, Lorenzo. Yeah, thank, you. thank you so much. Dr. Robin, you said maybe up to those who have black men in our lives to ask them the tough questions. Mm. What are the tough questions? Where does, yeah, where does it hurt? Not, um, are you hurting? Does it hurt? You know, it's like I, I say to um, parents and partners, if not, when you, if you hurt your partner. Yeah. It's when, when. it's yeah. when. So yeah. this is not asking your uh, black man or friend um, if it hurts. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. where does it hurt? Mm -hmm. And also giving them room because we can want to rush a man who hasn't had a safe place to talk and be impatient, kind of tapping our foot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, come on. So can we be quiet and still and allow him to emerge in the way that organically happens when a man or a person, but when a black man feels safe? And this I know for sure. Black men, just like with Courtney, who have come to therapy with me over all of these years, they never stop talking. Mm. Once they find that there is safety. There's, I was gonna say safety. Yeah. Once they find that there is someone who is curious about their story, really? curious about their infidelity. And sees that they matter. Yes. 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 They, they want to come and come forever. Yeah. I think it's so interesting that after your godson committed suicide in 2020, 
you said, I got to do something. I can't let this happen again. And you're reaching out and doing this, this book, The Invisible Ache with Dr. Robin, is your, is your testimony. In a, in, in That's a, exactly what it is. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And what do you hope to come from this? I hope that the young people, you know, I know at our children's, you know, it's happening all over the country, all over the world, that young people are taking themselves, are making this decision. And, you know, you know the, the, what happened with my father of finding the family who was looking for they him. They were looking for him. You know, and if you would just, if you could just hold on. Just hold just on. Hold on. You don't know what tomorrow's going to be. This is a sacred thing. It's a holy thing, yeah. this life. Life is sacred. It's a blessing. I know there's, there's and it's a journey. And some yeah. days are, are fraught. That's why it's so important to have your, your routine of and things that you know you can do that yeah. give you mm -hmm. joy. Yeah. So yeah. you know, finding joy as we all finding joy. And there's a the acronym for hope is hold on pain ends mm. because often when someone dies by suicide. They think the pain will never end except for by death. Mm. And so if we can hold I on. I love that. Hold on. on pain ends. Pain and it does ends. not have to be through death. It can be through the liberation of being called to the floor mm. of your own life. Well, thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Dr. Robin. Oh, thank you. For okay. raising your voices and standing in the gap. Mm. Their book is titled Invisible Ache, Black Men Identifying Their Pain and Reclaiming Their Power. And it's available anywhere you buy your books. Bye, everybody. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. David Oyelowo stars as America's legendary lawman in the new Paramount Plus original series, Lawman Bass Reeves. The new original series from executive producers Taylor Sheridan and David Oyelowo is based on the true story of Bass Reeves. Witness his journey as he becomes one of the first black U.S. deputy marshals west of the Mississippi. Stream all episodes of Lawman Bass Reeves now, exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.